0: You're listening to Up Your Brave on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
1: Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie. And as you know, I talk about culture, but I also like to dabble a little bit in politics. Having spoken to a number of our female leaders of minor parties, we thought now that we're getting to the pointy edge of the wedge in the election campaign, it was time to actually talk to some candidates who have a really good chance of getting into Parliament come 15 of October. Once the dust is settled, we put out invitations to all those parties that we thought could have that potential. The first party to come back and put their hands up and say, yes, please, we would love to have it." chat and a catch up were these three incredible candidates from New Zealand First. So joining me this morning is Casey Costello, number three on the New Zealand First list. Good morning, Casey. Good morning. And I've got Erica Harvey, number 10 on the list. Good morning. Good morning. And Kirsten Murphy number 11. So welcome. Thank you for joining me here today. Thank you. It's so good to have you along. One of the things I wanted to find out a little bit more from each of you is everyone talks about and all a lot of voters see is Winston, 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 and he is putting in some hours, but you all are as well. And a party isn't just one man. So for our listeners, starting uh, with you, Casey, tell our listeners just a little bit more about you and what brought you to campaigning and standing for New Zealand First. Um, So,
0: yeah, I've, i come from a um a police background but i'm very heavily involved in the police association so when i left the police I was vice president of the police association so i kind of had this advocacy sort of role built into me i suppose for the last seven years i've been um, i was founding trustee for hobson's pledge and the spokesperson for hobson's pledge with don brash advocating for equality before the law so i had seven years ago was very concerned about where we were heading in terms of division by race. And I don't think it's improved. It's in fact got a lot worse. Yeah. When I started to recognise that if we were really going to shift the dial, that had to be from Wellington um, as as hard as I was lobbying. And for me, New Zealand First was the party that had consistently in its 30 years of history um, stood for the fact that we are New Zealanders and um, New Zealand first stood for New Zealand and New Zealanders first. So um, it was sort of a natural progression. Um, plus I've sort of got a long background association to um, Winston and his family. So um, he comes from Funanaki and my my family's nātiwāi from just across the harbour. So yeah, so we sort of went back quite a way and it was a natural fit for me.
1: Mm, I know it's something that Shane Jones often says that it's time to put the K back into iwi. Uh, So yeah, so I know that's um, interesting. What about you, Erica? Because it it does sound a little like me that you're not born of this land.
2: (laughs) No, I'm American-born New Zealander. So I've spent the last fifteen years in Tauranga. Um, My husband is is from here, and we've had both of our children here. Um, For me, I mean, I've never aspired to be in politics, um, and I often you know, say that you only become interested, I think, people like me uh, in politics when decisions made directly impact your life and or someone that you care about. And so that's what got me into politics. And I think that's why this election is so different for many people, because I think COVID and 2020 affected everyone in so many different ways that people who traditionally might not have been interested in politics are now getting very interested and actually thinking, you know, is there more than just red and blue? Um, Like they say, red or blue, nothing new, you know? So maybe it is time to look at black and look at a center party. Um, I found myself uh, uh, getting involved with New Zealand First um, around 2016, 2017. I was uh, fighting a local issue against the local council in support of 25 small businesses on a development. Um, And I had, you know... I guess naively, I had thought that when you enter a process with any sort of government agency, you're, these meetings are all leading to something. Um, mm-hmm. And then we had meeting after meeting and nothing seemed to change except for the development that we were talking about continued to move forward. And I suddenly thought, oh my gosh, I think I'm just having meetings for meetings. Um, I didn't know how to properly complain. I thought that I had complained considering I had raised these issues many times. And um being with the you know, the national party, like that's how I always voted. It's how, you know, I guess I always thought if you had a business or you're interested in business, you vote for national. And so that's why I'd always traditionally been the national voter. But when I approached them on this issue, which was pushing out about 200, over $200 million from our local economy, it was a significant problem. I approached them and they weren't really interested. And I found myself walking through the doors of New Zealand First and, I remember meeting the MP at the time and he was so relatable and and nice. And he took the time to understand the issues. And then at the same time, he kind of said, this doesn't really work like corporate works. And he would walk me through the steps of actually how you start to lobby government. And so that took a long time to get through. And then I wound up having to stand in that local body election because no one was listening at that time. I couldn't Get a lawyer. Um, no one would represent us. We just kept hitting roadblock after roadblock. We were spending money we didn't have as a business. People were being threatened if they spoke out against it. And so I wound up being like the sole person for this um, this issue ran in that 2019 election. And that actually changed everything. Um, it gave me a platform. Then people started to listen. I feel like the meetings I had, they started to go, "Oh no, she could work with us." Almost. And then it started to make progress. And a lot of the rumors that I had heard about me that were untrue, those started to go away. And, um, you know, then we were able to get a lawyer to represent us. And so things started to change. And I automatically thought to myself, man, you really have to, you have to be prepared to stand up. If you're going to complain or you're going to try and, you know, do something against the system, I think you have to, you know, give yourself a voice, give people a voice and you have to actually learn. It shouldn't be this way, but politics and government is a totally different I don't want to call it a beast, but it's totally different. You have to navigate it differently. You have to be quite strategic in how you approach it. And I think coming just from a corporate background, I was approaching it like that. Um, and so that's how I started to get involved in in politics. Then I have a daughter with special needs who has autism. I was a chairperson of her school. Um, and then I started to speak out around the funding model there because the funding model is inequitable for kids with additional learning needs and looking at how we can you know, better equip schools and um and teachers and how we can look at that system so i started to become a voice in in education and so um yeah that's really been my journey is finding these areas and and actually realizing that politics affects every aspect of our life and i don't know why it took me so long to realize to realize that because every decision will affect us all and i just i'm hopeful that this election means that more people will get involved and actually listen to what everyone has to say and then make their own decisions upon how they want to vote based on that. Yeah.
1: It's interesting, you know,
2: that you say that you go
1: through all those processes because that's one of the things that I get told a lot is that there's that hope that things will get better. But unless you get involved in the process, it's a little bit like wishing and dreaming that you're going to win lotto but you never bother buying a ticket Exactly, it's, it's just not going to happen and I do feel your pain because I've got a son with autism and you and I later we can swap war stories on that I'm sure and I was just going to say Kirsten I know because I think you also f- fit into this boat with your family as well so tell us a little yes, bit more did. about your journey because I know that I saw you on the River of Freedom movie so that has been huge and you more than probably any other candidate and you Zealand First has been targeted by the media, but you're still here and you're still campaigning and you're still getting the word out there. So let us know a little bit more about your journey.
3: So I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. So up until 2020, um, I'm a lawyer. I've got 20 plus years experience in commercial and property law. There have been little journeys where I've seen injustice where i sort of poked my head up, but nothing major. And as a mum of a special needs child who's now 16 I've literally been advocating and fighting for him and others um, through that journey. So 2020 came along and I was terrified. I washed my cans. I'm afraid, ashamed to admit that, but things started not to make sense. And I started to see the rule of law being broken in New Zealand and the erosion of democracy. And I didn't like the trajectory that we were on. So, I bravely, in August 2021, wrote my first open letter and Official Information Act request, which went viral. And I was like, wow. And there were 15,000 on my petition very quickly and I thought I'd solved all the world's problems. Um, Then they cut my petition off so no one else could actually sign up to it and I didn't get one response. It was just this stark silence. And that's when I realised something was very, very wrong in our democracy. So I went to court with Sue Garay for the civil aviation case. Once again, we thought we'd win that. Um, Justice Cook listened to all the evidence. He actually said that he'd read all the science and the science, because we got to Omricon at that level, and it was all about transmission. So we were very, very surprised when we got the verdict, um, sorry, the decision, that we'd lost the case. And it took him a long time to come back with that decision which we found surprising given that this was impacting on people's ability to work and pay their mortgages and put food on the table. So we did that and realised the court system wasn't going to work. Then everyone went to Wellington. Um, I remember being down in Wellington, there was suddenly like this murmur that Winston was in the crowd and everyone was very excited. And I saw him in the crowd and I was too afraid to go up to him at the time, but it was just exciting that a politician, he wasn't in parliament at the time, but he had actually come... All the way to meet with the people so typical Winston style there was no fanfare he just really wanted to understand what was going on and to listen to the people so I began to get quite interested in him then and then I saw the state of nation speech at the start of the year which I was very impressed by um, at that point in time I was actually in a different party but we just kept following him and then when I left the other party with the six other individuals that resigned I was at Cambridge the next day and went backstage and asked if I could have a discussion with them. Mm. So that's sort of how I got there. Then Erica, I think rang me on the Monday and it was just so refreshing to talk to her. I was expecting New Zealand first to be a certain way, but she was so open to discussion and we spoke about amazing subjects. And I was like, yes, this is probably going to be my political home. So we went up to Auckland to the training day. Casey and a lot of the other individuals and I was just so impressed it was like democracy in action we were allowed to have differences of opinion we were allowed to debate um, but we all respected each other and we can all move forward together even if we've got differences of opinions so that's one of
1: the things that, that I've noted with a number of the parties is that they aren't allowing the freedom of opinion within their own caucus and yet New Zealand First you stand alone on that Everyone, I mean, on the list that I've seen of uh, 16, I think the list is, that, is there lots of difference of opinion and people coming from things from different angles? Absolutely. And you will talk it yeah. all out?
2: Yeah? yeah. I think that is what makes a, a good party and remembering that we're a center party. So our, our role as a center party is to balance both sides. So I think it's important that we have people from both sides so that we can come mm-hmm. up with balanced common sense policy and have robust discussions because I think that's the one thing that hopefully government have learned from 2020 is that the only way we can truly move forward, you know, as a country and together across every every policy is to hear each other out and have those conversations. So that is actually why I think New Zealand First, I don't know why people don't pay more attention to us because I do think that we, if people actually looked at our policies and met the people in the party, I think we resonate with a lot of people out there that usually probably would think that they're not the traditional New Zealand first voter. I I think that they would come across.
1: Hmm. So now that things are getting closer to the election day, I mean, polling started yesterday, early voting. We're getting close to the finish line and the race card got pulled last week. That had to pop up at some stage. So Casey as someone who has been in this space for quite some time with your work with Hobson's Pledge, I don't know about you but I thought it was particularly disingenuous from Chris Hipkins to try and corner Christopher Luxon in that debate on race over comments from one of your caucus members against a party whose first three candidates on the list are all Māori. How do you do that?
0: I, I think one of the challenges is this the, the Labour narrative has been to take possession of a victim narrative and and try to own it. I mean, I've said it repeatedly. It, it's they're the party that is literally standing on the backs of the people they claim to represent in order to elevate their relevance. And Winston says it often. They're of the people, but they're not for the people. And, and that's exactly the point. They are claiming ownership of martyrdom. And if you saw the kaupapa leaders debate, you know, that that this was seven diverse Māori representatives who not one of them agreed. So if you can have seven Māori leaders sit there talking about um, issues and no agreement, then surely we must accept that, just like anyone, Māori have individual thoughts, views, ideas, aspirations, capabilities, and this sense that a party is going to claim ownership of what is good for Māori. It's just so offensive. It's just so offensive to, to suggest that you know we we don't have the ability to claim our own aspiration that you know we need this. And and one of the things I always go back to Thomas Sal says it a lot. And when he says about grievances win votes, and if you can take ownership of the grievance, you'll win votes. Because blessings don't win votes, grievances do, and and that's what that's what they're trying to do is, is claim possession of the grie- grievance narrative and damn the consequences. You know, we, we don't have to deliver better outcomes. We'll, we'll just claim ownership of a victim narrative, and that's why I, that, that's literally where I stand up and applaud when Winston says they're of the people, they're not for the people. That's the strongest argument, I think.
1: One of the things that I've noticed is I love the photographs that get put up of all the town hall meetings. Mm. And many of them are standing room only. One recently went up in a You know, I know that town. It's not too far away from both you, Kirsten and Erica. And one of the things I noticed, other than the fact that that hall was packed, was the number of kuia and kaumatua that were in that hall. So when you were out doing your campaigning from a not only just a senior perspective, because New Zealand First has always, I think, been the only party that has been very proactive in the senior space, but you're also be, being very proactive in a positive way for Māori. What are people telling you out when you're doing your campaigning around those sorts of areas in terms of being the unheard voices or voices that are just, they're trying to be heard but not being listened to by the other parties?
0: that's one of the things that's resonated with me is, you know, like it, it I mean, I'm in Port Waikato. This is, you know, the, the, the Franklin market, Pocokoe markets, Pocono markets, this sort of thing. The number of Maori that are coming up and saying, they don't, they don't get to talk for me. This is the stuff that is really, I mean, I, when, when the um, voting papers started going out, I got phone calls from people were saying, you know, this is people on the Maori roll saying, I can't vote for you. I didn't know I can't vote for you because I'm on the Māori roll. This is the stuff that they're starting to – and when they did the census, you know, they did the big push to try and get this push onto the Māori roll. But what they ended up with was um, there was just over 5,300 went onto the Māori roll and 4,700 came off it. You know, they're like, this is the starting to realise that, oh, actually, you know, we've all got individual. But this idea that we're tired of rhetoric and we want outcomes, I think, is the the, the strongest thing that's coming through for me.
3: You no, know, I've had lots of similar responses where people are like, I didn't actually realise I couldn't vote for you. And so my lead volunteer, she's Murray, she's really for what Winston is saying. We talk quite intimately about it because she just wants some common sense. Like We've got all these elite Murray that are dictating and the only negative comments I've had is from the Labour candidate. Um, and she's a really lovely lady, but she has different viewpoints to me.
1: Mm. And in terms of seniors too, I mean, Erica, I mean, being in Taronga, you do have a lot of seniors there and a lot go to retire and, you know, the beautiful sunshine. And what are they saying? I mean, are they getting frustrated or they're wanting to make sure that they have a voice, that they at least know that if, if they place a vote and they feel like they've at least been listened to?
2: Yeah, I think that exactly that. I mean, seniors, I think in 2020, well, I'll go back in 2017 to 2020, we were in a coalition. And I think one of the biggest problems that I see in a coalition government is that when you come to campaign out of the back of that, a lot of the public don't know who's, um, whose policies are whose, right? So as an example, our policy was to deliver, you know, um, police, right? And so that was a lot of people thought it was labor. You know, New Zealand First was when we talk about education. So we talk about learning support coordinators, right? Rolling that out. New Zealand First policy. So New Zealand First is gone. Obviously, the last trench doesn't get rolled out. But also people thought that, wow, these are such uh, great policies. It must be Labor's because they're a bigger party. And so I think that when you see the shift, like with the seniors, I think the shift happened because People didn't genuinely realize whose policies were who, and all we saw in that 2020 election was, you know, the Labor Party and Jacinda Ardern and and Chris Hipkins, and they made everyone feel safe. And everyone kind of forgot about which parties stood for what, and they all shifted. And now that shift is coming back because they see from 2020 to 2023, what were the outcomes that got delivered for seniors, right? Not many. And so now it's looking at us again. We're, we've always been the party for seniors. You know, we introduced the gold card. You know, we've got some great policies coming out. And I think that, um, I think that shift is coming back. To me, it'll be interesting on election day to see how many people... Or Labour or have actually shifted to New Zealand first, I think that's where we'll be pulling votes from. And then I think, you know, there's also this group considering that shift, you know, what over 400,000 people swapped from national to Labour in 2020. I'm also curious in that swap, like how many will actually come to the centre, to New Zealand first? Um, So this is going to be a very, very interesting election.
1: Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up, Erica, because New Zealand first traditionally, I mean, 2020 is an outlier election, I think, in so many different ways. It's the first time we've had an election that was like first past the post and not MMP, in the sense that we had a single party. It was, we saw voting habits, like strategic voting habits that you would normally not see. If we take 2020 out of the mix and we look at the elections, that New Zealand First have been involved with, one of the consistent things has always been is that New Zealand First polls better at the end of the election than what has been predicted. So Absolutely. that has been fairly consistent. So with that bearing in mind, I mean, the we're now, a little, now high fives, sort of six, depending on the polls that you're looking at. Are you guys aware of the percentage points, those party vote percentage points you need to get the likes of you across the line, Erica and Kirsten? Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah, So, what are the sort of numbers are we looking at that? So, for voters out there that are thinking, oh, I like the cut of the sound of that, Erica and Kirsten, what are the kind of numbers that you need to get you across the line into the house?
2: I. I'm going to just jump in quick <laughs> because I would actually like to see over 10% because I think we've got just beyond Kirsten even, you know, we've got a solid team. So I'd actually be pushing for that. Um, look, if you get us 10%, you'll get me, you'll get Kirsten, you'll get Casey, you'll get some amazing other candidates as well. So my Italy. goal is say 10% at the minimum. Mm-hmm.
3: And we work so well together as well. Like Eric and I have been tag teaming. And we just support each other and we're working well with Casey as well. So it will be a force to be reckoned with if yep. we get in. Absolutely.
1: So the media have tried to, of course, <laughs> paint a lot of these new voters coming across to New Zealand first as mm. those dreadful anti-vaxxers and those those freedom people, or as I like to call them in Aotearoa, um, the chickens out in the back paddock. And... Uh, <laughs> Seymour has dealt with it by getting rid of all of his chicken sympathisers because he obviously hasn't had time for them. I thought he stood for freedom of speech. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think that's a bit like the cookie monster. It can be a sometimes thing, Kirsten. <laughs> However, in regards to that freedom vote, we're getting feedback in here to us. A lot of people are really passionate about the freedom parties. You came, Kirsten, from a freedom party into New Zealand first. We're now starting to get feedback. So this is only anecdotal, but feedback that they're now starting to see a real opportunity to get the likes of you across the line, Erica across the line, Lee across the line, and they're starting to coalesce. Are you starting to hear that now as well? So they're not wanting necessarily to be disloyal, but they're also being pragmatic. Do you think pragmatism is going to start to take hold over the next couple of weeks?
3: It's definitely happening. I'm hearing it more and more every day. Um, Lots of people are speaking out at the moment. Um, There's been some misinformation that's been spread by one party in particular and some people like Dr Shelton, Dr Ratner and others are actually correcting that information at the moment. I also understand Lee from Groundswell will be coming out why she's voting for New Zealand First. So, yeah, more and more every day people are actually realising if they want a voice in Parliament, New Zealand First is pretty much the only choice. Like I wish the other parties well. I understand their aspirations and come back in 2026. But if you're not polling near that 5% threshold now, I sincerely believe that it will will not happen in a week and a half.
2: Do you know what else I think too about about the minor parties at the moment is that I would actually really like to see in 2026 a, a lot of minor parties who have actually these next three years, just touching on what Kirsten said, is I'd like to see these next three years, those parties, you know, continue to actually work on the mission and what they're trying to do, keep up with, you know, what's going on in politics. And then, you know, perhaps there is an opportunity then in 2026 to run and actually make a strong run where they, you know, because I just, I would, I would love to see more ideas come through those smaller parties. And so, yeah, that's just one thing I just wanted to add.
1: But then that goes back to, doesn't it? And I think you're right the ones that have got the stickability to stick it out. Because, I mean, how many years has New Zealand first been around now? 30. No, 30. 30. <laughs> 30. exactly. <laughs> this is a marathon, not a sprint, isn't it? Right. Yeah. yeah. I think the strongest point that
0: you've got there is that a lot of these parties have been galvanised by the fact that they weren't being listened to. And fair enough, they... But for the last three years, New Zealand First wasn't there to listen to them. And, and so there was this yeah. sense that you want to be heard. And it is the House of Representatives. And this is why I, I get concerned about par- parties that are so ready to dismiss candidates. They might have a personal view or opinion that is, you know, contrary to what the party is trying to say. It is the House of Representatives. It needs to be representative of New Zealanders. If you're the party, which I've, which is why New Zealand First resonated with me, was that they're the party that will advocate not what's the easy message, not what's the the simple message, but they will advocate and have the really tough conversations and call people out for, for not, not saying the truth. We're allowed to disagree with each other. That's the whole idea of, of, of politics, is that you're allowed to disagree and come to the common ground so that we can actually get some better outcomes. I think that's that's why these issues, and that's why I think that the push to New Zealand First is being so evident, is because there is a diversity of representation, all behind some really strong policy positions to effect change, but diversity of opinion to start with, which is what I think diversity is supposed to mean.
1: So let's look at some of that. So 1,800 police was actually, as you said, uh, Erica, was a New Zealand First policy that got bought in in 2017. Here we are now, uh, 2020. Casey, you must be tearing your hair out as an ex-police member, and you probably still have people within the force looking at what has happened over the last three years. What are you hearing in terms of the concern both from the constabulary currently... Concerns that they have in terms of either their ability to police and help with crime and those outcomes moving forward, and what has New Zealand first got in terms of policy to bring to the table to help turn that essentially these crime stats around?
0: Well, one of the things that's really struggling with the police is that you know when I was in the job, which is you know kind of nearly twenty years ago, was that you know there, there was constabulary independence. The, the police got on to fight crime. That was, you know, that was our job. You, you make, you uphold the law and maintain public order. That that was your job. And how you did that was up to the police and, and you, you made that happen. Over the last three years, the, the direction and the influence of policing has been so constrained by political agenda Um, that we stop worrying about bad guys and we definitely stop worrying about victims. Mm. Every narrative that you heard was about the circumstances of the offender, which I think is abhorrent. You know, yes, once you're in the system, then there's opportunities for rehabilitation. But the first thing, we have legislation that requires us to protect victims' rights, and it just seemed to have gone out the window. And, And the other thing is, that, from New Zealand First policy point of view, is that we're talking about you know serious organized crime you know that the, the gang con- concept that we're used to you know in our younger years talk about you know the, the gang problems that gang that, that we're talking about a totally different mechanism we're talking about serious organized crime and when you know new zealand first comes out of a policy around Reclassifying gangs as terrorist organisations, and you know those who haven't been at the front line and don't realise it scoff at it, like you know, oh, what's going to be a gang member? That they they're just naive, and that's what we have to stop first. We have to break the cycle. We have to intervene and break the cycle, and giving police sufficient powers to deal with gangs and isolating them from the rest of the community, we have an opportunity to break the cycle, and that's that's one of the. You know, I think the strongest things that we need to do is actually take it seriously and, and not tutter with the fringes, actually get stuck into the, the core heart of this issue. And then once we've broken the cycle, then we can start moving forward, you know, getting all of the nice-to-have stuff going through, but we have to break their cycle and targeting the gangs is the first part.
1: Mm. So is this sort of really getting a back-to-basics approach? I think so, yeah. Because that was one of the things, again, with that Aporake meeting, because, of course, you know, they had a lot of gang issues there several months ago. And, you know, that's at the forefront of their community. And you've got not only the organised crime element, but the drugs and all the other social issues that go along with it. Then that, of course, leads into social issues and families and education. So I'm assuming, Erica, education is a sweet spot with you. So, I worry a lot, and I talk a lot with education with my co-host Media Matters, Marty Gibson, which I think both Erica and Kirsten, you both know. And, yes. and he's really hot on education, having kids go through the primary system at the moment. And and it, those statistics are, I mean, they're appalling. As a mother of a special needs child, <laughs> the system is not built for anybody that does not fit the middle of the bell curve. Yeah. So what are the policies that New Zealand First, and especially you guys too as, as mums, are looking at in, in terms of getting those outcomes? So not the nice to have, not the warm fuzzies, not the big open rooms, but the actual meaningful outcomes so our children aren't left behind.
2: I think a lot of that starts in the very beginning too of like, A child's life. So, the moment that you have a child, some of the stuff New Zealand First is focused on is, you know, looking at that first 1,000 days of a child's life and how supporting a child and educating parents um, on those first 1,000 days and how important they are actually has shown that research has shown that we will actually be able to like set them up for life, right? So, there's a lot of education that I think goes into the beginning. So, like Casey touched on, what do we do right now and how do we focus on the right now? And then I think moving forward, we've got to focus on how do we make sure that these outcomes don't happen again for these new children that are coming through these families? We're in a really rough time right now. So education is a big focus and it has to be a system that works for everyone. I mean, if we look at education, you know, just as a whole, um, it was designed back in the Industrial Revolution, you know, and if we look at modern education, it seems wild to me (laughs) that we ex- we have children now who have social media they've got devices they've got phones they've got youtube they're constantly stimulated like stimulated and then we expect them to sit in a classroom for you know 6 hours a day and behave while they're looking at you know just a traditional type of so i think that you know in the long term we've got to look at how we can start engaging uh students better um getting them you know excited to come to school because they're learning things in different ways i mean i know for me you know, growing up, even though it was some time ago, if you had a really good teacher, I mean, that would make me show up to school. And so I also think there's, you know, there's an element of uh parents like at home to get kids going to school. There's another element of, you know, are the teachers that we have teaching these kids, Um, you know, are they actually exciting them? What kind of, you know, curriculum are they putting together? Is it for all learners, you know? So I'm facing an issue now where my daughter is, in a unit where she'd always been mainstreamed. And when she was in the mainstream and properly supported in that mainstream at her primary school, the growth in her has been amazing. The benefits for all other children has been amazing because they've gotten to see that all kids aren't the same. And then now that we've had to change schools, I'm actually having to almost fight the school to get her out of this unit just to mainstream her with other kids. And I've even had the department head come into a meeting with me to say that my daughter should be going and they will help support it. And it's just like a battle. And I just think to myself, this shouldn't be a battle. You know what I mean? And as parents, we know our kids. I think there's an element of, there's so many things in education that's going wrong. And one thing, like if you've got a kid with additional learning needs, like I do, like you do, like Kirsten, the way that you teach these kids is so important. Because if I were to sit my daughter into one of these courses around sexual ideology, right, around gender, well... (laughs) I don't actually know what she's going to take from it, because before you could be a tomboy because you liked rugby. Now you might be a boy. I mean, and those things are quite confusing for children. You know, like my daughter would admit to a crime if she thought that's what you wanted her to do. You know, so when we're getting into these tough conversations, we also have to protect, you know, all kids because some kids may. The last thing I want is my daughter to go and start Googling, even though she's of age to learn about, you know, sex. I don't want her to be Googling it right now because what she's going to find on the Internet is also as bad. And so these conversations, I feel, you know, need to be coming from the home. I think parents need to start taking charge of what their kids are learning and not just leave it up to schools. And that goes with discipline, like being a chair of a school. We saw, you know, kids who were doing great school holiday would happen. They'd come back to school and they were rough. They were, you know, their um, behaviors were escalated. And that's because what we were doing in the school wasn't being practiced at home. So I think we have to take ownership of that, too. There has to be a better partnership between schools and families um, as we go through this.
1: I've noticed that schools are inserting themselves more and more between the child-parent relationship, which I've always found quite quite disturbing. Is it safe to assume then when we look at some of the gender stuff, things like uh, the gender closets gone? Mm. Yeah, no more pronoun policing?
2: No. I mean, it's yeah. not a New Zealand First policy anyway. I mean, look, I I think how the our stance on any of this is, is, is as simple as this. We don't mind what you do in your bedroom. We don't mind what you do in your spare time or however, you know, who you're attracted to, what you want to be. But we don't think that the government should have any say in that. And we just think people should be accepted for who they are. And we just need to move on. It's not even a discussion, really, you know? Yeah. Uh, the phrase
0: that Winston says often which is just it simplifies it, it's education not indoctrination and yeah. it, everybody gets up in arms about you know oh you're, you're just you're you're scaremongering but it truly is and and just as you said when you're inserting yourself in between the child and the parent in order to influence the way they think you're no longer educating Mm. And and that's what and and the biggest part is to get kids back into school again. Mm. You know, we we have horrific attendance and attendance in school. You know, that's just not right. I, I was just at the uh, the groundswell rally on um, Sunday, and um, a young guy came up and said, "Oh, you wouldn't happen to be related to Tony Costello?" And I went, "Yeah, that's my sister." And he was she was she taught him in 1990. And, you know, 33 years on, he's saying, oh, you know, she turned my life around. You know, those are the teachers we have to have. Like, those are the people that we, we don't, you know, they're great teachers out there. We just need to, like policing, we just need to get the hell out of the way and let them do their jobs as educators, as law enforcement officers. It's They, they have the answers and, the, and the, the actions. And the first thing we do is get the kids back into school again. Mm. and do everything we can to make it so that the kids are back in the classroom and the parents are accountable when the, the kids aren't in school. And, and yeah, there's a lot of kickback on, you know, oh, so you're going to prosecute parents. No, we're going to make it so it's not acceptable for you to stand back and let your kids not go to school. Whatever mm. we need to do, that's what you have to do, is you have to get the parents back involved in the kids' lives. And that's what I say. It's not complicated. It's Just like you said, it's the back-to-basic stuff. Mm.
3: Yeah. So, I was just going to talk. go back to the agenda mm. because we keep talking about equality in our schools. So part of the rationale for the gender ideology in our schools is equality. But at one of my public meetings, I had a lady from Inside Out come along who tried to interject, but I spoke to her afterwards. And I said to her, if it's all about equality, then why isn't there equality for all? Why isn't there equality for the disabled? So according to Inside Out's own website, 0.8% of the population is transgender, but one in four people suffer a disability. So I did say to her, where is the one month celebration for my son and children like my son? Why is my son meant to attend school for 38 weeks per year but only attends for 33 because he gets kicked out of school for mainstream exams, even though he's in a special needs class. And they use the word equality for that as well. It just is illogical. So if we're gonna have equality, then it should be equality for all, not a small section of society.
1: Are they still using the word equality? Because I noticed that there's been lots of switching from equality to equity, and it's been this little linguistic sleight of hand. Have you noticed that?
0: The equity discussion is that you can never argue against it because if there's any imbalance, then everything you say is you know, is justifiable because we can show that there's an imbalance of outcome. But yeah. the point with it is that we actually... we we're not, we're not actually interested in equity of outcome because if we were interested in equity of outcome, we would be doing more practical things to make sure that the opportunity exists for all rather than worrying about the, you know, the, the, the fringe little frilly things that actually don't deliver any better outcomes. It's about creating the aspirational quality of opportunity and the drive to achieve and reach your potentials. But, you know, we know that, you can have the same family. I'm one of six kids, and we have a completely diverse range of outcomes across six kids, and we grew up in the same household. If we can't get the equity of outcome in the same family, what's the chance of it doing in society? And I always argue that if you want you know, equity of outcome, then the only way to achieve that is remove any freedom of choice, that as a parent you have no choice, you have to do this, you have to do this with your kids. And it'll just be a race to the bottom mm. because as I, soon as you force that, we will have a race to the bottom. We will have the – it's the racism of low expectations. It's, yeah. Thank it, it, you, that's comrade. exactly the strategy.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I agree with Casey. I attended the United Nations Advancing Agenda 2030 last week online, and they were speaking about equity a lot. And so I actually put it to Bloomfield. How was it equitable? Because you kept talking about equity of vaccines – How is it equitable that they brought in the mandates for a vaccine that did not stop transmission when they knew that? But of course, they wouldn't answer any of my questions. So I agree, it's actually narrowing things down.
1: Mm. One last question before we wrap up, and that is in regards to policy, because you guys have got a lot of policy and it's very, very difficult to get a cut through in terms of different policy we've talked about lots of things here what is something for each of you that is a policy that you have currently with New Zealand First that you would like to bring into the house into a coalition negotiation that most listeners or Kiwis will not know about so it's a sort of what a, a little sleeper hit as it were so I'll start with you Kirsten what do you think Out there is sort of the a policy that New Zealand first has that we really love to see get across the line that will make really huge, meaningful change for Kiwis, but they may not be aware of.
3: I've got two favourites. My first one is having a full, independent COVID inquiry with no politicians involved, so that we actually get independent people looking at it and getting recommendations that people can trust. So we're not having politicians influence the terms of reference. Also getting out of UNDRIP as well, which is basically the foundation for co-governance.
2: Mm-hmm. What about you, Erica? Yeah, I agree with um, Kirsten on, on UNDRIP. I think that's quite important. As, and as well as the COVID um, inquiry, I think is, is is one of the most important um, policies that we're putting through. Um, but I also, when we look at the cost of living, I mean, I think holding that banking inquiry uh, in New Zealand just to see actually what what's going on and see if we can start to bring those, you know, that uh, percent down a bit in the banking industry, I think would be helpful alleviating some of these high cost mortgages and, and rent. Yeah. And then for me personally, I would really like to see us um, roll out that final tranche of learning support coordinators. I know that that would have a huge impact for schools and especially for um, you know, children like ours who have um, additional learning needs, then I guess another one I would hope to see if we've got the money for it is the introduction of um health aids, which specifically deal with students who have health needs, don't necessarily have learning needs, but they just need assistance with health, considering they might have, you know, diabetes. i would I would love to see that policy of ours come through right. What about you, Casey?
1: Well, I got I
0: got stolen out of my Androp one so <laughs> <laughs> sorry um, I, I think that the one that I'm really passionate about is that the, in terms of our record of investing in the provinces, but the protection of our our sovereign identity as a nation across the board, that includes our sovereign independence in terms of our financial c- capabilities. So the things like protecting TY Point, reopening Marsden Point, that the stuff that will make us operate with autonomy, and with confidence as we face the world, and that we are not going to be dictated to from international organisations and through international treaties. You know, that's the benefit of our democracy. We have ultimate parliamentary sovereignty, and that needs to be protected, and it's been eroded, and, and that's the part that I, I really appreciate where New Zealand First is standing on, is to, to, to reclaim that position.
1: So, unlike so many of the other parties, you actually do what you say on the tin. Okay, look, I want to thank Watch you out. So-, so much um, for coming along. And I hope this has been helpful for people out there who have been still. Really worrying about where they're going to put that party vote. Uh, so, this has been uh, Kirsten Murphy, Eric Harvey, and Casey Costello from New Zealand First. Thank you very, very much for coming along. I yes, do no appreciate your time this morning. And don't disappear here on Counterculture. Coming up very shortly, in fact, just un momento, is Marty Gibson with Media Matters. We'll unpick this conversation plus many other conversations that have gone on in the media this week here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio.
0: You're listening to Up Your Brave on RCR Reality Check Radio.